Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. I'm Tony Kornheiser. This is my show. My friends come on and you know them. We talk about the sports you care about, basketball now, golf, and the metronome of your life, baseball. Whether it's opening day, the big tournament, or one of the majors, we have the best to preview it and break down just what happened. And let's not forget the important stuff, the amount of daylight where I live, the importance of speedies, and the rankings of beach-style pizza. Listen on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. Check one, two, check one, two. Kristen says she's about to call me. It's 8.43 p.m., April 28th, 2021. I got some news. I had to share it with Tom immediately. I have no idea what it's about. But she told me to turn on my recorder, and last time we did this, it was because there was a an update to a Gone Cold story. So, I don't know. Maybe we're about to get an update on a Gone Cold story. We'll, we'll see. Who knows? There was a major development in the Boy in the Box case. We covered it a few years ago. I'm recording because you texted me. What's going on? Investigators didn't have the name, but they had a direction. If, if this does happen, though, like if the Boy in the Box, if they find out who his family is... That's huge for, for like entire lives. They had a family they were looking at and they had a full DNA profile. It was something everyone connected to this case had hoped for. So what's, yeah, what's, what's next? I'm Kristen Johansson. This is Gone Cold. It was this young boy nude in the box between three and six years old, they weren't quite sure how old he was. His hair was closely, was recently uh, a crudely haircut. His nails were pared, and he was deceased. So they initiated an, invest, uh, an investigation as a homicide. There was some bruising uh, on his face. We will probably never know his identity, and hopefully we will one day. I pray every day that one day we will be able to take down this sign put up his real name and soon we'll uh sorry soon soon we'll have his name and one day <laughs> god knows that we'll figure out his identity and his real name will be portrayed upon that sign thank you for coming out of all the hundreds buried here there was one little person that wasn't forgotten ever they're the cases that crawl into your soul when it's a kid, and I think this one more so than all of the others. If this case could get solved while I'm alive and see that name when that's in, that would be to me a life worth lived, well lived. On December 8th of 2022, journalists from all over the city, the state, the country gathered to hear the name. Up to that point, only a handful of people knew it. 
Today we have some extraordinary news to share with you about one of Philadelphia's oldest unsolved homicides. For 65 years, the story of who would come to be known as America's unknown child has haunted this community, the Philadelphia Police Department, our nation, and the world. Without the hard work, dedication, and passion, and the doggedness of the many, we would not be here today to give America's formerly unknown child, Joseph Augustus Zarelli, a voice. I'm blown away. It, it's very emotional. You kind of have tears in your eyes. I do. I do. I'm, I'm holding it together. It's stunning. It's um, pretty heart-wrenching. So glad I have a name. I'm just relieved. I'm happy. I'm just almost ready to cry. It's, you know, now he's alive again. I got a, a little, just a little bit teared up for an old man, but not much. I'm so proud of this detective division, these scientists, the media that kept this live, and, and the VDOC Society members who participated. We kept the faith, the spirits around you. I, now I know I can call him Joey. Really impressed. I mean, genetic genealogy seems to be the wave of the future as far as investigation goes. I think the commissioner captured it when she said, we have finished one chapter, we're moving into the next chapter, an active investigation. Those who had worked on the case were stunned, emotional, and grateful. It would have never happened if not for another case. That huge break in a cold case terrorizing California for decades. Police say they now have the Golden State Killer in custody. And they use DNA testing to find him. So many families are relieved this morning. The killer accused of murdering at least 12 people, sexually assaulting... Through the 90s and into the 2000s, investigators had used DNA to link dozens and dozens of rapes and about a dozen murders in the Sacramento and San Francisco area that happened in the mid-70s and 80s. But in 2018, they used that DNA profile, submitting it to a public database to then have genealogists build out a family tree, which eventually led them to their suspect. Police say this man, 72-year-old Joseph James D'Angelo, is the elusive Golden State Killer. I woke up to a text from a very good friend of mine who said, do you think this is really the guy? And it had an article attached saying that they had somebody, they had made an arrest. And I, I just started shaking. I never in my lifetime expected to see that. The boy was found February 25th, 1957. The remains of a white male, estimated to be four to six years of age, were located in a wooded area with dense underbrush along Susquehanna Road between Varee and Pine Roads. The child had been severely beaten. He was unclothed, had been wrapped in a multicolored blanket and placed inside of a cardboard box. Multiple bruises were visible. An autopsy revealed that the child has sustained multiple abrasions, contusions, a subdural hemorrhage, and pleural effusions. Homicide Captain Jason Smith explained how they got to the name through genealogy. Detectives were able to locate and make contact with possible relatives of the child's family on the maternal side. The genealogists involved in this investigation were able to establish the identity of the birth mother of the unidentified child. A court order signed by a court of common pleas judge to obtain the birth records 
death records and adoption records for all children born to the established birth mother between the years 1944 to 1956, there were three responsive results based on this order. The third result was a birth certificate for a male child born to the established birth mother in 1953, which could be consistent with the approximated age of the unidentified child. Based on research by detectives and the genealogists, a male was discovered who could possibly be the birth father of the unidentified child. A request was sent to the Social Security Administration Office of Inspector General to determine if a Social Security number had ever been issued in the name of the child. Joseph Augustus Zarelli. Joseph's date of birth is January 13, 1953. They do not have a suspect. They don't know what happened to him. They only have suspicions. There are a couple pieces of, of evidence in our custody, one of which we're, we're doing a, an examination for possible DNA. All right, it was an article of clothing that was left at the crime scene. But the evidence between then and now, it's, it, it, it's diminishes, just like the child's DNA degraded became very, very difficult to extract a, a strain of DNA that was, that was viable. Okay, so one of the things that I'm hoping comes out of this press conference is that we receive an avalanche of tips from the public. But in that avalanche, there might be a diamond in the rough. Of course, we're going to be revisiting the family members. We just had a member down at the homicide unit. So like I said, this is, remains an active investigation. We're going to continue to work this. Based on a few people I've spoken to the last few months, the investigation is not focused on Joey's biological father. After learning Joey's name, I went on a bit of a deep dive into both his biological parents' families. I spent many hours going through the Zarelli family tree, Joey's aunts, uncles, cousins, and half-siblings. Those siblings lost their father a few years ago. Joey's mother has also died, though there are some half-siblings on that side as well. In this case, though, a child died. Two families found out about a half-brother they never knew existed who was murdered. They have a lot of questions, very few answers. I spoke with some members of the Zarelli family. They've told me they're stunned, shocked, and emotional, and trying to wrap their minds around this huge piece of news. They feel some frustration about being left in the dark. But they want the public to know they love and care about Joey. And they're grateful to the many investigators who put in hours of work trying to identify him. After Joseph Sorelli was identified as the boy in the box, I had a chance to speak with people who grew up in the area where he was believed to have spent his short life. Captain Jason Smith explained it was in West Philadelphia. I mean, I, I, I can narrow it down. It's, uh, 61st in Market area. 61st in Market Street. The area had been heavily populated with Italian and Irish families. The parish right there was St. Donato's. Through the 50s, 60s, and 70s, many families who lived in the city moved out to the suburbs, like in Delaware County or Montgomery County. Some moved to the Northeast. We'll be back after this. Northeast Philadelphia is where the boy was found, in the Fox Chase neighborhood. At the age of 10, my parents moved into the Fox Chase neighborhood, actually two blocks away from, from the, where the boy was found, where, you know, where Joseph was found. 
This is Bob Kohlmeyer. So, you know, 10, 10 years old, I'm in fifth grade in a local school, and the local folklore story is boy in a box. He's a retired sergeant. Just over 40 years uh, service with the Philadelphia Police Department. I was in the homicide unit, and part of the homicide unit is SIU, Special Investigations Unit. The Special Investigations Unit was charged with working on older cases, you know, essentially cold cases, along with new cases. He started working with other detectives on the case in 2007. Up to that point, detectives had only been working on tips. Any tip that comes in needs to be worked on to see if it would shed some light or if it could shed some light as to what had transpired and how the boy ended up where he was found. The files included boxes of interviews, photographs, police reports, flyers. Kohlmeyer started from the beginning. Any witnesses uh, who, who had called the police or if there was you know, physical evidence or just to be able to look at some photos, what the scene looked like. Their next step was to talk with the man who found the boy along a dirt path in the woods. Myself and another detective were able to track down that gentleman. There, there was a lot of in-between-the-lines type of thing, a lot of blanks uh, in, in his statement, uh, the questions that we had. So obviously, as an investigator, you need to get a personal feel as to um, what the witness was uh, thinking at the time and what he was reporting to the police. Was he leaving anything out? You know, those type of variables. They also looked at older evidence. Even with uh, deteriorated evidence, there, there's still a possibility that something could be gained from it. Like testing for DNA. We visited some people and, and um, they consented to, um, to having their pro- profile or DNA given. One particular, particular individual that turned out negative. Another individual, we had a piece together, uh, a search warrant to go get her DNA. We tracked a woman down and, um, and that turned out to be negative also. In 2019, Kohlmeyer was getting close to retiring. The thought was, well, what can we do to set something in place to at least establish the, the child's identity? He and his team, along with the medical examiner, organized the DNA lab and the genealogist. They exhumed the child's body from his new grave in Ivy Hill Cemetery and sent it to that lab. I believe it was the hip bone that, was, that led to the successful profile while the lab was working on DNA, detectives worked on getting records. There were two potential candidates um, that could have been the a child's mother. So now we had a last name and we were able to get enough information to court order the state of Pennsylvania, um, the birth records. And those records arrived after I retired. I was short by, by a month or two to be there to witness firsthand but to be able to share in the, the excitement that uh, a plan that we had um, put together had materialized and resulted in um, you know, giving this child the dignity of having a name. Breaking news on KYW News Radio. Well, the name of the boy in the box finally revealed after 65 years, as you heard it right here live on KYW. KYW's crime and justice reporter... Knowing the name of a victim allows detectives and investigators to work through victimology, diving into who Joey was, where he lived, and what his circumstances were. Is there anyone alive 
obviously that knew the boy or, or his family. Both the parents have passed, but you know, are there siblings that maybe over the years heard something in the family, some stories about Joseph? You know, was there something that transpired? Or, but even more important is, you know, we know the family, we know the area where the boy lived. Is there someone in that area, whether it's a business owner or a neighbor, that um, would remember something about Joseph Zarelli? The important part, as in any investigation, is for a detective to talk to a live person. There's no better um, piece of evidence than talking to a live witness. For Kohlmeyer, his career has now come full circle. I believe we are put on earth to do certain things in life. So that stayed with me from, from the very beginning of coming into the Fox Chase neighborhood. Uh, you know, our athletic program, our soccer program in the neighborhood, one of the head coaches and founders of the soccer program was uh, Elmer Palmer, was, uh, was the first police officer on the scene that transported the, the child, you know, took the child, you know, to, to the medical examiner. It's, it's interesting to me even all these years, how it's held people captive. This is Jim Palmer, Elmer's son. I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to fully articulate how my father felt, but it did. It stayed with him forever. In 1957, Elmer was the first officer on scene when Philadelphia police were called about a dead child in a cardboard box. And then, and Dad talked to a lot of the other officers over the years that had been, that would be at those type of ceremonies and all. And all of them had that same respect and and tenacity to keep trying to figure out what happened. Elmer was also the one who transported that child to the medical examiner's office. And he was the first patrol officer. He worked out of the seventh, and that's this was part of the seventh back then. So you got to remember, none of that was there. None of this was here. No, this was all it was, it a was wooded too lane. dumping ground. Yeah, it was just I two lanes. That was it. It was just two lanes. The entire story begins here, along Varee Road off Susquehanna Road. It happened right over there. Right there. Yeah, right around here. There used to be a huge building back here. Okay. And there were a couple of older properties along here that they tore down. And before they put that in, they put all that in as well. Elmer was the officer who essentially kicked off the investigation that lasted more than six and a half decades. Do you ever see people when they get that huge sense of relief about something and they just go, oh, I think that would be it. I do. I, I really do. I think for all of them, I don't even know if there's anybody still around from the beginning, but I just think it would be such a huge sense of relief for them. What do you think it is about specifically this boy that just kind of captivated and had all of these people kind of adopt him as their own? I think there's a sincerity that people have and an empathy that people have. And I think a lot of the people that were kids back then, it stayed with them because they were kids. A lot of people that were adults, and even now, a lot of people that are adults, you you have empathy for the child or however he got here. And, you know, that was, you know, every, there was nothing but speculation to the point, to this point right now. You know, I think also, like, just standing right here, you know, it's very quiet. 
like a couple cars passing, but it's very quiet. And what it brings back is there's all this attention around it. There's all this media speculation. There's all this internet stuff. There's documentaries. There's books. There's podcasts. There's everything. But going back to that day, it was basically just your dad and the little boy. You know what I mean? Yeah, it was. It was a small group that when it first happened until they couldn't figure out what was going on, then it started to get to be bigger and bigger. Yeah. I mean, you could write a book just on the names of the people that have been involved in the case, but your dad, I'm just saying your dad is really the start of it. I don't know if he would agree with that. I mean, he's the first one on He the was list. the first officer, right. But he's I don't know if he would agree with the start of it, but it, it was a group, it was um, a department effort. This is very cathartic, I think, not just for, for me, but for people in the neighborhood that were here then, for kids growing up, and especially for the officers that have been involved over all these years. I think, or I hope that it's cathartic and people find peace from it. I really do. You know? There are still more than 800 unclaimed or unnamed bodies in the potter's field where Joey was buried. Those are the ones who don't have such a peaceful ending. So we got involved in that case uh, with the genealogy aspect of it. Ryan Gallagher works as the forensic laboratory manager for Philadelphia's criminalistics unit. You know, my bachelor's degree is in molecular biology. I learned all about DNA there. It's more in forensics in the master's degree. The genealogy aspect is really just a different application of it. It's some similar technologies are used. We're still using a DNA profile to search databases for a person and for an identity. In 2018, we did a podcast about Potter's Field. How did you choose the, the cases that you choose that you chose mm-hmm. in Potter's Field? The um, medical examiner's office, um, you know, their, their death investigators, they started putting together a list of all the unidentifieds, and then they worked with AG's office. Or That's about the time the Homicide Unit, Special Victims Unit, and Forensics Unit teamed up with the medical examiner and district attorney to go over hundreds of names of either unidentified or unclaimed remains. Because we realized there are people that are buried in Potter's Field that don't have a name, that were never given a name, much like the boy in the box. They're looking at each case, first starting with the file, which may include fingerprints or dental records. The group is prioritizing homicide victims. One, because they're homicides. Two, because we have samples that are of enough quantity and quality for this process. They're the ones we can go get right now and send out. And they can be in process while we're working through the other cases and trying to identify what's next. The list also begins with children and teenagers. So many of these bodies date back to the late 50s. Joey, formerly America's unknown child, was found in 1957. So it's really identifying what's been done on these cases. Is there anything else that can be done in these cases? And if the answer is no, then what else is there? Sometimes they can easily identify someone based on updated records without exhuming the body. But of course, some of these remains need to be dug up and have their DNA pulled, if they can even get it. Every day we obtain DNA from samples. We don't need much DNA to get a regular profile, regular STR profile that we do every day. For this type of work, we need a lot more DNA. To put this in perspective, the year Joey Zarelli was born, in 1953, that was the same year that DNA's double helix was discovered. But it didn't mean much to investigators back then. Detectives didn't preserve evidence the way they do now. They'll try and grab some from the femur bones, the jawbone, or the teeth. But that doesn't guarantee a result. So we know that's where there's a lot of DNA, 
but that doesn't necessarily guarantee a result. Many of the remains in Potter's Field were buried in cardboard boxes. The city was trying to humanely bury people in an inexpensive way. These are remains that have been buried. You know, you have microorganisms that are doing their job and, and de- decaying you know, remains, not just, uh, just human remains, but any type of remains. They're con- essentially contaminating the, the issue, right? And then you identify, you think you have enough DNA, and then it's not all human DNA. So then you have to go back to the drawing board, yeah. If there is enough DNA, they'll build a profile, and they'll send it to contracted genealogists who then try to link the profile to relatives, creating a family tree. That genealogist gives us a report. Sometimes that report is, we're close. There's a half-sibling in the database. Which doesn't take too much time to track. But other times, the relatives can be as far out as fourth or fifth cousins, and there could be thousands of people to go through. And sometimes, genealogists only get parts of samples or not enough DNA to work to continue the family tree. And that's where it's, it's difficult, because now what? These investigators are working these cases, bone by bone. It's a large task um, to undertake for these cases, Uh, not so much financially, but more just manpower and resources. Uh, So we want to identify the cases that really, truly need it and which ones can be identified in other ways. They all deserve to have their name um, and do as much as we can to get there. Weeks after he was identified, the VDOC Society etched his name in the same tombstone erected in 1998 at Ivy Hill Cemetery, where they had buried the little boy. We gather in the wake of having learned his name, which has further restored him to the fullness of his human dignity. He's no longer America's unknown child. They added another, a charcoal gray stone with the little boy's face, a prayer in his name. Before we unveil the stones and, and the gravestone. I want to take this opportunity to, uh, to extend my gratitude on behalf of the VDOC Society to all those people present and past that aren't here today but in spirit and soul for bringing this child, Joseph Augustus Cirilli, who had he lived, it would be his birthday today, to put a name on these stones. Both the investigators and their families who adopted him as their own and members of his own biological family who had just found out he belonged to them emotionally watched the headstones unveiled. And today we know Joseph Augustus Cerulli lies under that gravestone with his name. He's no longer unknown. He's known, he's loved, and I'm sure he's up there in heaven. So we're going to unveil him. Joseph Augustus Sorelli, born January 13, 1953, found in a box February 25th. 1957. 
celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. I'm Tony Kornheiser. This is my show. My friends come on and you know them. We talk about the sports you care about, basketball now, golf, and the metronome of your life, baseball. Whether it's opening day, the big tournament, or one of the majors, we have the best to preview it and break down just what happened. And let's not forget the important stuff, the amount of daylight where I live, the importance of speedies, and the rankings of beach-style pizza. Listen on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.